Again, it's great to see all of you today, and I'm going to ask you if you'd open up your Bibles with me to 2 Samuel uh, chapter 6. 2 Samuel chapter 6. As we saw last week, um, David came into Jerusalem. It was a very big deal. The Lord is blessing him greatly. Gave him a capital city for Israel. Gave him a royal household in which to live. Multiplied his family. Gave him peace from his enemies, victory over his enemies. But now we come to even a higher point in the life of Jerusalem and in the future of the kingdom of God. This is what we read in 2 Samuel chapter 6. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was against kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because of the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah. The Lord broke out against Uzzah in this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. That means he came from Gath. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told to King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. And so David went out and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. Do you know that the distance from the house of Obed-Edom to Jerusalem is estimated to have been but nine miles. Can you imagine that? Every six steps, an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod, which was the garb of a priest. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord, was shouting and with the sound of the horn. And as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. 
And they brought in the ark of the Lord and they set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And he distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. And then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, this was David's wife, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel has honored himself today, uncovering himself before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all of his house. She was the daughter of Saul. That had to be an ouch kind of comment, didn't it? To appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you've spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of the Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Let's pray together. Father, I ask you now in these moments we have together, consider your word. May it be your word that we are considering. May it be your word that's on our minds and that's filling our hearts, that your Holy Spirit is working within us. And to that end, we would ask, to the end of the Spirit's work and goal and purposes in us, we ask, that you would make the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, as I just read, this is the account of David bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, the city of David, the new capital of Israel. And in doing this, he was really enshrining the truth. He was broadcasting, establishing the truth that, that Israel, this kingdom among men, was now the kingdom of God. The Lord was present with his people to reign, to guard, to bless, to receive their worship. Arguably, this was the greatest day in the history of Israel, certainly since the Exodus. And that ark, though hundreds of years old, it was no mere relic. It was no mere relic at all. It wasn't just a reminder. It was holy to the Lord. It was holy unto God. The Lord, the God of all creation, had set it apart for himself to manifest his glory there over the ark. So the cover was called the mercy seat. The lid was called the mercy seat, set off on each side by a a gold-covered cherub, wings raised. And it was called the mercy seat because the Lord's presence was over the ark. And in the same way, David then would come to refer to the ark in Psalms and in other passages as the Lord's footstool. Just as the lid of the ark was the Lord's was the mercy seat. Because the Lord had set that ark aside for himself, it could only be approached by the way he he commanded. It was holy. 
could only be handled the way he commanded, which was it wasn't to be touched physically ever at all. It was holy to God. It would be carried by priests. In fact, a certain group of priests among the Levites called the Kohathalites, I believe it is. And they would have, there were rods that went through the Ark of the Covenant. There were four rings, two on each side. Rods went through them. They were never to be removed from the Ark. And the, uh, uh, I'm sorry, I mixed it. The Levites hoisted those on their shoulders and carried them. It's amazing. God's presence in relation to that Ark is what made it holy, and He defended it. And guarded it as holy. Now, I just want to stop right there with you for a moment. And let's assume that we didn't know the whole story. Everything I've just read. But um, let's just assume now as we go forward that, that, that you know this. That David had the ark transported to Jerusalem. That Uzzah and his brother placed it in a new cart. And that means that it was... Uh, a matter of respect. It was undefiled. It had never been used for anything else. It would probably never be used for anything else again. And slowly and majestically, this ark is pulled into the, into the new city, drawn by a team of oxen, maybe two, but maybe many more. And Uzzah was walking alongside the ark to make sure all was well with the ark. His brother was in front of the ark, leading the oxen. But of course, something unexpected happened, and that was that the oxen stumbled. And so to present it is prevent a disaster, Uzzah reaches out his hand, he grabs the ark, he keeps it from tumbling off the cart. Disaster averted, right? Now at the same time this is happening, David is joined by thousands of others. And as the ark is being brought into the city, he's out front, he's singing, he's shouting, he's leaping, he's whirling and dance. That's what that term dance means. He was twirling, he was whirling, he was excited, he was shouting just like I do Sunday after Sunday. When verse 5 says that David and all the house of Israel was celebrating before the Lord, that verb to celebrate comes from the word laughter. Our word Isaac, Yitzhak, meant laughter literally. That's the root of this word. I mean, they were singing and they were laughing. This was not Gregorian chant, monotone. This was joy. Unrestrained joy. Unrestrained. Now, here's my question. And remember, you all are, or should be, Presbyterians. (laughs) Of those two men, Uzzah and David, which one would you say was most likely pretentious? Full of himself, taking liberties, showing off. Which one of these people would you look at and maybe shy away from a little bit, you know? And say, yeah, I'm not with him. <laughs> and honestly, if we knew nothing else about the story except what I just recounted, wouldn't most of us really say it was David? It wasn't Uzzah. Wasn't he drawing attention to himself? Wasn't he just a little too enthusiastic? Where in the law did God ever command, dance before me? There's no commandment like that in the law. And wasn't this exactly how Michael, David's wife, viewed him 
She may have had many good reasons for not being too fond of him at that point, but wasn't that the way she was viewing him? Later, we we read her rebuking David in verse 20. How the king of Israel, so sarcastic, how the king of Israel has honored himself today, uncovering himself today. You see that repetition? Covering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of those vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And you know, that's great. I, I mean, I'm glad I'd forgotten all about that. Isn't dancing lewd and sinful? You know, we allow no dancing at atonement. You know, if you're under six, you can skip, but that's about it. (laughs) But look with me at David's answer in verse 21, where Michael accuses him of dancing before the eyes of women. He says, simply, it was before the Lord. It was before the Lord, Michael. And he goes on and he he insists, "I I will celebrate before the Lord. And then in verse 22, he pledges himself again. I will make myself even more contemptible than this, and I will be abased even in my own sight. Reminds me of Paul, doesn't it, when he says we're fools for Christ? And yet Uzzah, on the other hand, he was the one who was struck down for being inappropriate, for trying to avoid a scene, acting quickly to prevent an upsetting breach of decorum and liturgical etiquette, and it could be viewed as an emergency. So here at the outset of worship in Jerusalem, this new era dawning that's going to lead to the Construction of the temple and the sacrifices that are going to be offered there. You see this precedent, this precedent being laid down. One consideration being elevated above all other considerations. One thing that is most important. There's one thing that should dominate our thinking as we come to worship. One thing, and that is that we recognize the presence of our holy God. It is not about whether we appear respectable to other people. It's not about whether we act respectably or dress respectably. It's not about decorum. It's not about propriety. It's not about everything being in its place. It's really not about order, precision, or accuracy. Above all other things, worship is about recognizing the presence of our holy God and relating to him, truly worshiping from our hearts him. So that all those other things, they do not matter to our worship. One draws our attention. One thing draws our attention. The presence of our holy God. And we are relating to him. 
This is about God's presence. This is about God's real presence. In this passage, five times, which is every time, there's a reference to David celebrating or dancing or leaping or offering sacrifices. The phrase is added at the end, before the Lord. Before the Lord. He danced before the Lord. He sang before the Lord. He celebrated before the Lord. He leapt before the Lord. And he defended his behavior before Michael just simply with this phrase, it was before the Lord. And we can say, well, isn't God present everywhere? Of course he's present everywhere. He's the creator of all things. In him we live and we move and we have our being, Paul said to the pagans in Athens. But here, it isn't the name or the word God that is used. Whenever God's presence, his particular presence, the manifestation of his presence, of his being, is is revealed in the scripture, it is the covenant name of God that is used. It's the Lord. Not just God, but the Lord, Yahweh. God, the one who is as he is. You cannot contain him. You cannot control him. He is what he is. He is who he is. He is altogether holy. He does whatsoever he determines to do. He works all things after his purposes and his will. He is that he is everywhere at every point in time. And this covenant-making and covenant-keeping God can manifest himself in particular places with great intensity. His glory is felt, that his glory is known. That doesn't mean he's a local God. That doesn't mean he can be contained. That doesn't mean that he can only be known or worshipped in one place. But this he can do. This he can do, and this he does. For love's sake. For love's sake. He comes down to his people. Their personal Lord and Savior, but also absolute in his holiness, and he comes to us in our worship to speak with us, to listen to us, to watch us enjoy, watch us enjoying him, to enjoy us enjoying him. And it's only because he's present with us that our worship can be worship. Because it would otherwise be impossible for us to draw near to him in spirit and in truth. That comes from God. That comes from God's presence. Do you know that the Lord Jesus is more present here this morning than you are or than I am? I mean, really, we're vapors. We're passing away. He's everlasting and he's eternal. And he's determined to dwell with his people. He's more present here than you or I are. I mean, when he said where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them, Jesus was taking the old covenant promise of God to his people, to Israel, and he was making it his own. He was taking it upon himself. You know, we come in here and we may, be phys- we may be physically here, but we can be mentally, emotionally uh, distracted, sleepy, 
in a fog, disengaged. None of those things are true of Christ. None. Absolutely none. Now it's true that we do not have the Ark of the Covenant to assure us of the Lord's presence. But what we have been given and what we do have, and it is universal, it is for every church, it should be in every church, certainly, is the Lord's Supper. And how we treat the Lord's Supper, how we come to this table, what we understand about it, whether it's an act of worship for us as we draw near to it, is just as important as how the ark was treated in the Old Testament. And that is to say it is holy. And we are to approach it knowing that Christ is truly and really present by his Holy Spirit in the meal. Think about this with me. In 1 Corinthians, Paul was writing to a church that was messing up, okay, on a lot of levels, including with, including with the meal. So he is very intense when he writes about the Lord's Supper to the Corinthians. There's a more intensity in his writing about the Lord's Supper then you, you will find, I think, even in the Gospels when Jesus instituted it. First of all, he named this the Lord's Supper. Just like you would talk about Caesar's decree or you talk about the king's feast. This is the Lord's Supper. That means he is the host. He is the inviter. He is the gatherer. He is the provider. He is the one who is presiding over it. It's exactly what it means. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty, And then he goes on and refers to it as the table of the Lord. Chapter 10, verse 22. He names the cup, the cup of the Lord. In chapter 10, verse 21, he teaches that Jesus called the bread my body, which is my body. This bread is my body, which is for you. The bread which we break, he said. The bread that's in front of us this morning. The bread that we're holding in our hands. He said, Jesus said, this is my body, which is for you. He called the cup the new covenant in Jesus' blood. He called the eating of the bread a fellowship in the body of Christ. He referred to the drinking of the cup as a fellowship, as a communion or partaking of the very blood of Christ. This was the language he used. And so here we come to the Lord's table, to take the Lord's supper, to eat the body of Christ, to partake of the blood of Christ, from the cup of Christ. And Jesus said, as he instituted the supper, and as Paul taught again what Jesus said as well, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. You say that with me? Do this in remembrance of me. Exactly. 
when he said, do this in remembrance of me, this is the way we customarily describe it. That when we take the Lord's Supper, it is a reminder, it should evoke in us the memory of what Jesus did for us on the cross. How he shed his blood for us on the cross. How his body was broken for us on the cross. So we do this in remembrance of him. But my question for you this morning is, is there not more to it? When you hear the words, all the references to the Lord that Paul uses to describe this meal, does do this in remembrance of me not also mean do this in remembrance of me, which is remember that I am present. Remember I am with you. Every way Paul describes this meal is to say Jesus is with us. He is present. None of the things Paul said about this meal could be true unless Christ was present. It would not be his supper. It would not be his table. It would not be his body. It would not be his blood. It's only true if he is present. It's in the same way. How could the Lord in the Old Testament call the cover of the Ark of the Covenant his mercy seat unless he was present over it? How could the ark be his footstool unless he was present? And Uzzah so tragically discovered the loss, by the loss of his life, that the ark was far more than a symbol. And was it not also at Corinth that believers tragically discovered at the loss of their lives, Paul says at the end of that chapter, some of you sleep, some of you are ill, sleep refers to Christian death, At Corinth, others learned at the loss of their lives that the meal was not a mere symbol. I mean, it's just a symbol. You know, there are lots of symbols. Why can't you do what you want? It's just a symbol. But in fact, it is a sign of the presence of Christ. He is, he links himself with this. So that when the Corinth, the believers were eating and drinking in an unworthy manner, Paul says you're sinning against the body and the blood of Christ. And so some were dying, some were sick, because God guards the sanctity, the sacredness of this table, just as he guards the sanctity and the sacredness of that ark. Now why aren't? Why aren't we all falling over dead every Sunday? Well, Lord willing, we're taking this meal uh, from hearts of faith with gratitude. Sometimes I think God is just extending special grace. But when you realize that this is true about about this meal... And again, the meal is not about the meal. It is about the presence of Christ, our Savior. How are we to respond? 
And you know, many Christians and denominations, including Presbyterian denominations out of Scotland, have responded over the centuries very much like David responded after Uzzah died, which was to say, I really don't want to do any, I don't want much to do with this ark right now. I think I'm just going to give it to my friend uh, uh, Obed-Edom. <laughs> Obed-Edom, why don't you take it? Because I'm not sure I want it in my house. Poor Obed-Edom, what, what's he going to say? And churches have, in their practice of the Lord's Supper, a number of them have taken it reluctantly or even fearfully once a year or maybe even other year, every other year and only after a night full of fasting and praying and confessing sin and, and in some cases then also after a, a very close examination by, by elders. It was a very fearful thing to take the supper. It's not right. What David did was not right. He got the wrong message. And when David found out that the Lord had blessed Obed-Edom and his house as a result, he took the ark back and he finished that triumphal entry into Jerusalem and he still leapt and he still twirled and he still sang and he still shouted praises of thanksgiving before the Lord. The text, of course, also makes it clear that now the ark was carried You read it carefully, the text. It was clear it was being carried by people, undoubtedly priests, using poles, not touched as God had commanded. And now an ox and some other fattened animal were offered in sacrifices every six paces. David was taking no chances. What he understood was that that the presence of the ark was for the joy and well-being of God's people that the Lord, by the presence of the ark, was showing that he was drawing near to them so that they also would come to him in order that they could draw near to him, God, who is holy. And what a great privilege that is. But in the supper, our privilege is even, it's really even greater. Our fellowship with Christ is direct and it's intimate through the Holy Spirit. So what are we taking away from this, brothers and sisters, as we think about our worship and all the things that go into our worship and all the concerns we have? First and foremost, worship is not about what anybody thinks about you. It's not about whether what you're doing is proper and respectable to others. It really is about you exercising your freedom through the blood of Jesus Christ shed for your sin to come before God because he is fully present to you so that in worship you can be fully present to him. That's what our worship is about. Psalm 2 Words for the kings of the earth, but I think it applies to us. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. I like that. Rejoice with trembling. There is a trembling joy. It's a wonderful thing. 
kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Our great God, our Savior, is is also a consuming fire. And as his people, we're to come near and to him in the midst of his holiness because he's present with us to worship him. Him. Let's pray together. Our Father, I do love you and we wouldn't be here if we didn't love you. It's true, I'm sure most of us, maybe some of us feel dragged in here today or that we had to come, but Lord, we love you. I mean, Jesus, your son, has, has loved us. His work on the cross for us, which was your work intended for him to do for us, is so fully convincing and so absolutely sufficient for us to know that we are forgiven because you are merciful above all mercy and that you delight to receive us and your desire is that we would have fellowship with you and your determination is that you will inhabit the praises of your people. Lord, you're present with us now. You are present. And comparatively speaking, nothing else matters. So Lord, I pray that as we come together as a body of Christ, each of us individually and also corporately together, would see that you are the only thing, the only one who matters. And that we worship for your pleasure. Amen.